This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Carol Masser in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, along with Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. We got to talk a little bit more about the virus because we just mentioned about BioNTech, what they said that they're on target with uh, Pfizer uh, to meet their production targets. We also have a story about Anthony Fauci slamming the UK's drug regulator, saying that it rushed to clear the COVID-19 vaccine from Pfizer and BioNTech. And then you've got states trying to figure out, okay, how many doses am I going to get, Tim? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the issue uh, among the many issues is that there's no sort of standardized rollout program for this. And I I just yeah. envision a scenario where, I mean, some states don't even have the technology right now to keep a large number of these Pfizer doses cold for a significant period of time. Yeah. So there's so much that we still have uh, or that we need answers to. Let's get into all of this with Dr. Ian Lusbader back with us as he is on every Friday, uh, clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center with us on the phone in New York City. Hey, uh, Ian, nice to have you here with Tim and myself. Um, So what stood out for you this week? Because we've got a lot of headlines to go through. For sure. Happy Friday, uh, Carol yeah. and Tim. Hope hope you guys are uh, staying safe and doing well. Thank you. Yeah, definitely some challenges. You know, we're seeing more cases locally. You know, here in the tri-state area, certainly nothing comparing to the to uh, the Midwest and out west, where uh, you know the record uh, recording a large number of hospitalizations and deaths and taking you know certainly more extreme measures uh, uh, of shutdown. Uh, locally, though, we are very excited because we've gotten word that um, we should be expecting the Pfizer vaccine delivery about mid-December, probably around December 15th. You specifically and at NYU Langone? NYU Langone yeah. is expecting. We got okay. a call from you know one of our senior administrators, and uh, you know they're sort of working on exactly how that's going to be, you know, distributed. Um, my sense is these come in, you know, large boxes and dry ice and have to be kept, you know, frozen. So uh, around the country and certainly here, distribution will be uh, an issue. But each box has approximately five thousand, uh, a little under five thousand doses. And uh, there are somewhere in the range of 1,500 practices, you know, uh, uh, the faculty group practice and, of course, hospitalists and so forth. So I think um, it's going to be a little bit of a logistical challenge. You know, fortunately, um, it's not an emergency, uh, and it's going to be on a voluntary basis. Uh, Interestingly enough, uh, really, uh, it's mandatory to have your flu shot, Hmm. which is only about 25% effective. But it is really everyone who is seeing patients is uh, supposed to get a flu shot. Um, But it's not yet mandatory, certainly, for COVID. I think most people, at least the colleagues I speak to, are very enthused and are, uh, you know, ready to line up to get it. It is going to be two vaccines, two shots, approximately a month apart. Right. So, Well, uh, what about you, doctor? Are you going to get it? 100%. Yeah. You'll be among the first in line? Uh, if they'll let me. <laughs> I mean, look, you are, you're, you're a medical provider. You're on the front lines. I mean, this, is, this, is, this shipment's meant for you, right? 
Absolutely, yes. And that's the understanding. I actually thought the very first people who would get it would be the in-hospital physicians, the hospitalists and critical care specialists, because they are literally bathing in COVID, you know, and the patients that are in the hospital and isolation rooms and so forth, uh, many of those patients are very sick and need, you know, very close care, the, you know, the intensive care nurses and so forth. But my understanding is it's really going to be uh, apparently available to all of the you know, frontline uh, uh, health professionals, which is great. So before the end of December or early January, if most of us can get it, again, it's two doses. So uh, a month later, you'd get the second dose. I I think people are very enthused about it. Yeah, it sounds that way. I've got to ask you a question. It keeps kind of coming up at home. Why do they need to be kept so cold? Uh, In this for preservation, this particular formulation is you know minus 73 you know centigrade uh and that makes it very difficult shipped on dry ice the moderna vaccine not that we're playing you know favorites here uh is uh doesn't need to be kept quite as cold that's not going to be probably approved or distributed until later both very effective both very similar technology this messenger rna technology which is new uh, and I think people have some concerns, but really all of the data we've seen seems to be very encouraging. No vaccine is 100% safe. There are, mm. right. uh, and certainly with the flu shot, you know, we do see Guillain-Barre syndrome and this transverse myelitis. There are uh, uh, side effects, So, mm. uh, but we're really not seeing that much from this uh, particular class of uh, a vaccine. You so know, so let's say you do get approved in the U.K., Let's say you do get this this vaccine and, and you get it close to mid-December, you get it in another month for your, your second dose. How do you anticipate that your behavior is going to change uh, in, in the spring and in the late winter? That's a great question. Uh, certainly, I think, you know, for me, when I see patients, I put on an N95 mask, goggles. Um, when we do procedures like colonoscopy, you know, we're gowned up and gloved. Um, and so it is stressful and uncomfortable walking around all day with a mask and goggles. Um, and so I think certainly uh, I would think about switching to a surgical mask, which fits a lot looser. Mm. You know, you don't feel quite as restricted. Um, and I think as more people get vaccinated, uh, the level of tension will go down. There is a little bit of anxiety when you're seeing patients and you realize this person could hurt me. I'm here to help them, but they could potentially hurt me. That uh, takes a toll when you've been doing that month after month. So, Dr. Lesbader, Tim just shared with me a story, um, and we were just talking about it a little bit, how New York has one of America's lowest per capita rates of COVID-19 hospitalizations, but it's surrounded by states um, that are far worse, and that that's pretty much a dangerous sign and perhaps a sign of what's to come. Do What are you seeing, and what are your expectations? So that's really a similar question that uh, I and my colleagues have raised. Uh, we certainly know we're seeing some pockets of outbreaks, you know, in Brooklyn and uh, uh, some out in Long Island, uh, and definitely a few more hospitalizations for COVID, but nothing like um, March and April. And we're certainly not seeing the huge surge that's going on in the Midwest and out west. Uh, and we ask, you know, why is this not happening? And I think. You know, I'm guessing, but I, I think there are a few possibilities. One is I think New Yorkers have been very meticulous in wearing masks outside of a few areas. Mm-hmm. Um, two, I think we've had a lot of uh, patients who were sick and who have gotten sick during really um, 
March and April, and we're seeing a lot of antibody positivity, a number of patients who either had mild symptoms or sometimes severe symptoms. And I think the estimate is at least 20% of people, at least in the New York City area, that have positive antibodies. And we typically think herd immunity is somewhere in the 50, 60, 70% range. But I think when you have a large population that is antibody positive, and there even may be more than that because the antibodies fade and you're left with cellular or T-cell immunity. So I think there are a number of people who've actually had this, um, and that's why I think we're not seeing it spread quite like wildfire as we're seeing out west and in the Midwest. But uh, fortunately, we are we are seeing a slight increase but not a huge increase in the number of hospitalizations. Do you think that's going to remain like this? I mean, obviously, you can't make predictions, but but given what we saw over Thanksgiving, the way that people were traveling, given what people's plans are perhaps for the Christmas holiday and late December holidays, I mean, this, this could go up. Yeah, Tim, that's an excellent point. And we do expect... Um, uh, with sort of less social distancing over Thanksgiving and 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 the December holidays, um, that we will see a bump certainly in in positive cases, usually two three weeks after after that time. So there's definitely going to be a bump in the number of cases. Will there be a bump in the number of hospitalizations? Probably somewhat. You know, again, we do have to remember the vast majority of people who get this, certainly young people or people below seventy you know, may get sick, but they do fairly well. They they don't all get um, uh, hospitalized. Now, if older people or uh, people with lung disease, hypertension, obesity, et cetera, diabetes, if they've been exposed, and they really shouldn't be exposed because they should know really to isolate and not socialize, but if they've been exposed, we do expect um, certainly a bump in cases. But I think New York has been so far, uh, the tri- uh, this area at least, uh, relatively spared because a lot of people have already um, had it. But according to COVID, the COVID tracking project, single-day case records were set yesterday in Vermont, Rhode Island, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania. I'm just thinking, I feel like, as Tim said earlier, like everything around New York, um, Dr. Lespader just seems to be increasing. Absolutely. And those uh, areas, you know, Vermont, Maine, uh, Upper New England, was really spared during the, the, the March and April time period. So I think we're seeing, and this is what happened in 1918, you know, there were areas of the country as it went around the country in these different waves that thought, oh, gosh, we're going to escape it. And of course, they didn't escape it because this is what happens in pandemics. But my sense is we are not going to have anywhere near that same lethality as um is the Spanish flu in, in 1918. You know, we have vaccines that are going to be administered within the next few weeks. Right. Um, but I, I do think those other areas that were not hit are having, you know, terrible surges. Hopefully they've had time to prepare knowing what happened and knowing what they need with personal protective equipment, ventilators. Hopefully they're prepared for that. And hopefully their population knew, you know, not to push the envelope. If you're at risk, don't socialize. Don't go out. I've got patients who literally have been in homes in Massachusetts for, you know, eight months now, uh, only going out, you know, for shopping because they're afraid of uh, exposure. Obviously, not everyone can do that, but but, but yeah. sensible people in those areas hopefully have been isolating. Yeah, exactly. Hey, thank you so much. As always, stay safe, be well, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone in New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer on Bloomberg Radio.
People talk about the productivity that comes working remotely. Well, if I work seven days a week, you know, 15, 16 hours a day, I don't take any holidays, at least for a period of time, I'm going to be more productive. But I think there's, there's two axes to that chart. One is certainly the productivity measured over longer periods of time. But I also think the other piece is creativity. And what I'm mindful of is I don't want to wake up as a, as, a, as a company. I don't want to wake up as an industry and have hollowed our skill sets out. All right. If you didn't recognize the voice, that was Citigroup CEO Michael Corbett in a televised interview with Carlisle's David Rubenstein, host of Peer to Peer on Bloomberg Radio and TV. Uh, that was at a Bloomberg Invest Talks event uh, that aired earlier today. Tim, I feel like this is going to be this is what everybody's discussing about working from home. Are we more productive, less productive? Will it continue? He obviously has some second thoughts about it. Yeah. And, and look, <laughs> I don't even have second thoughts about it. I have first <laughs> thoughts about it. Um, I think it's on a case by case basis. And of course, so it, 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 it changes depending on what you do for work. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's I, a luxury to be able to work from home. Right. And, and as we've seen, right, in the pandemic, that a lot of people can't do that. This story, those comments by Michael Corbett, it is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. And Jenny Serain wrote about it specifically. She is finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She's with us on the phone from New York City. Hey, Jenny, uh, nice to have you here. So Michael Corbett, not holding back there. No, definitely not. And, you know, he's really been um, pretty much an advocate for getting his employees back eventually, slowly, um, but really hasn't been, um, you know, saying that they would be moving towards a more permanent work-from-home structure. So it's very consistent, but this is kind of a new tack, the, the productivity question. So that was kind of interesting to hear from him today. I think there will be this balance, though, between what it does to productivity and also what it does for when it comes to the real estate footprint of these companies because they can save so much money, especially if they're, if these companies do what Silicon Valley companies are doing, which is pay people less if they leave Silicon Valley, for example. Yeah, Michael, you know, that's a good point. Jenny, did Michael, did Corbett say, yeah, we're ready to, have they made any changes in terms of real estate needs? Or it sounds like not because he expects everybody or wants everybody to come back. Yeah, so they had actually been in the process of kind of shrinking their New York footprint already. And so I think they had already been on that on that plan. And so this coming definitely accelerated that and, and kind of helped them maybe consolidate a little bit more. Um, but he did say, you know, probably not everyone will have to be back in the office full time. It probably will allow us to shrink our real estate footprint um, in some way, but really, really held back from saying that there was going to be some more permanent widespread shift to remote work at Citigroup. Yeah, I feel like I'm hearing from more people, especially in the financial community, that their expectations are it's going to be, Tim, very, very different, that they're, they won't need as much real estate, that they do anticipate that workers, you know, now we're nine months in, habits are hard to change, and people like the flexibility of being able to work at home. I wonder what the implications are of this, though. Does it mean different things for team development and the way that people work with teams? Does it mean different mm -hmm. things for the way that mentors work with mentees and are able to actually nurture talent development at organizations? I mean, that's a really good point, Jenny. And I've he heard that about the concerns, are especially for maybe minorities and women who already have a tough time making inroads, what that might mean for talent development. Yeah, well, and Corbett brought that up as well, kind of noting that um, he really wants to know what this will mean for the creativity that people bring to their roles. You know, so much of what happens in an office is just those kind of random moments where you run into a colleague and come up with an idea and, and run with it, um, which is really hard to create in this remote virtual environment. Um, so I think that's, that's kind of what he was pointing to with that comment. Um, and the other yeah. big thing is, is just what our offices look like. You know, Citigroup yeah. has been moving towards this open floor plan 
um, you know, is that really stable in a post-pandemic world? I know. As we look at our open environment, like, listen, that's been the rage, right? And like, all of a sudden, everybody's like, oh, yeah, maybe we need some barriers here. <laughs> I wonder, though, how, um, how how Corbett's position perhaps differs from those of his peer banks and those from his colleagues. What, what have you found in your reporting, Jenny? I think it's definitely a mix. It seems like there's some in financial services who are more comfortable with like a, a, a scheme where employees may work from home three days a week and come in two days a week or vice versa. Um, but it, I really haven't heard a lot of folks in banking talk about, you know, doing the more permanent everybody works from home forever. Um, it seems like there's there's some desire for either a mix or, or definitely feeling towards getting everyone back. Um, there's also the regulatory component. You know, banks are heavily regulated. Right. Um, and we haven't heard much from regulators on this point, actually. Um, but historically, they've definitely, you know, really focused on having, you know, butts and seats, as it were. I love this interview. And I know you went a couple places, as did David Rubenstein with um, Corbett. But they also talked about uh, when Wells Fargo got Wachovia uh, and basically away from Citigroup. Um, he addressed that. Yeah, it was super interesting. Yeah. Um, and really what's interesting about it is he talked about wanting that branch network, which is so fascinating. You know, in the middle mm. of the pandemic, when lots of banks are closing branches, the idea that he would still rue or wish that they had that big national branch footprint um, is, is kind of unique. So um, definitely a really interesting interview that um, Rubenstein had. What about when it comes to digital banking and the way that people are banking differently, not just over the last few years, but but in the pandemic? We were talking to, to Joel mm-hmm. and Brett earlier at Business Week, and they had an executive from MasterCard on their list because of the way that touch, uh, touchless payments right. have just shot up in the last year. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely true that um, consumers have really moved in droves to adopt mobile and, and online banking. Um, and Corbett actually addressed the fact that you know, if they went out and said, we're just, we're just ready to close every branch or, or we're ready to close, you know, a lot more branches, a lot of customers would leave because hmm. even though they really like that mobile and online experience, they still have this weird desire to just be able to go in person and be able to talk to a human. So hmm. um, even though they're seeing, you know, less foot traffic in their branches these days, they still want to have that option because without it, they really feel like consumers would, would get to the bank. Just don't lose my money and I'm okay. I don't need to go into the branch. Like I can do everything on my phone and I'm I, happy. All I know is I need to go to the ATM twice a year. Four? Twice a year. Oh, that's it? Yeah, that's it. That's now it is. <laughs> right. You really don't need yeah. to go. All right. Jenny Serene, thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Great reporting. Uh, Jenny is, of course, finance reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. Are you being serious or are you just like kidding? Is that what you do twice well, a year? This year it will be twice. Oh, twice. Yeah, just this year. But it is. I prefer not having cash. Yeah, I do too. But it's, it's you know, it's not something that every everyone is accustomed to at this point. No. But, but yeah, I mean, I think with the, the pandemic, a lot of people changed the way that they're handling money. I always think about how I grew up and my dad had the envelope of cash. <laughs> it's like where every, it's like how everything was doled. Did he at some point have to hide it from you? <laughs> he hid it from all of us kids. There were seven of us. He hid it big time. Only my mom knew where it was. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. We just have a few minutes left in today's trading day. Let's get right to our market guest. Time for the drive to the close with David Dietz, President and Chief Investment Strategist at Point View Wealth Management. $7.3 billion in assets under management. David, back with us uh, on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. David, good to have you here. President-elect Joe Biden being, you know, rather... Um, 
you know, kind of, he said the jobs report was grim. I felt like he was grim too in just understanding the plight of a lot of Americans and the additional stimulus and aid that they need. How do you see it? And if we don't get that aid and the right amount of aid, what will that ultimately mean in terms of our economy and ultimately our financial markets? Well, absolutely. He was. Uh, it was appropriate to be grim because, yeah. of course, the jobs report for November came in short of expectations. We still have an unemployment rate, which is unacceptably high. So, you know, that's the bad news. Of course, juxtaposed against that is some even better news in a way, because we've got terrific announcements from not just one, but three vaccine producers giving us vaccines that have a 95 percent efficiency rate. And some of that's going to be rolled up before the end of the year. So we know what the cause is. We know the problem. But at least we're starting to see a very bright light at the end of the tunnel. Nevertheless, it's not quite clear exactly when the population will be able to get vaccinated. So for those poor people who are out of a job now uh, or whose businesses on Main Street are going south fast, there is certainly a need for aid. I wonder how, though, you know, this aid comes with a divided Congress and, and what what the expectations are from investors right now, especially as we see Vice President Pence right now, uh, you know, doing a rally in Georgia because that this balance of the Senate actually hangs in Georgia. Obama is headed there this weekend. President Trump is headed there this weekend. Uh, what is the market expecting in terms of that that turnout and or not turnout, but the result of uh, the January 5th election? Well, certainly in the last 10 days or so, Wall Street is getting more optimistic that we may see something before the end of the year, may see something in the lame deck session. I don't know, to be honest with you. I mean, we should have had something two months ago, and the reasons we didn't get something now then uh, – probably plays into why we may not get something now. You know, from a Wall Street perspective, from my perspective, it's almost like trying to buy a stock ahead of the earnings release. So you have these negotiations before we really know the composition of the Senate. Um, you know, the Dems may be better off waiting. If they capture those two seats, they may be able to get a much better deal um, later on in January. And, and so there is a little political gamesmanship. That people don't really know what all the cards are on the table. Nevertheless, but, but is there time? I, I mean, is there time for that? Because Americans, as we saw with the jobs report today, they're struggling. You know, um, <laughs> every every week is important, and so many of these benefit programs do end at the end of the year. And so I, I do think people sincerely want to get something done, and whether people can agree on something that at least helps the American people in terms of the unemployment problem, uh, let's hope. Certainly the market, of course, with its focus six to 12 months ahead, right. as we're seeing today, seems to ignore that it's looking much further beyond the current problem. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you. The market definitely, it's a discounter, right? It does look ahead and it does seem to be discounting any of the tensions and stresses and rising cases numbers and rising hospitalization numbers. But if we don't get this aid package right now, might the market have to discount what's going on even uh, further? You know, there's no question about it. Um, uh, you know, 70% of the American economy is based on consumer spending, and as, as bank accounts dwindle down and the outlook for jobs uh, darkens, that's going to affect spending. But of course, what we saw back in March was never discount 
what policymakers will do for us. So we have a big meeting from the Federal Reserve uh, next week. What might they do? There's a chance that they say, look, we're going to keep the amount of bond buying going, but we're going to target longer maturities, yield curve control. That could be a shot in the arm further for the market, for the big real estate market, and could be helpful. And of course, right. if, if, if things get really bad, then actually the lawmakers may pass a uh, temporary stimulus bill. Right. Well, so, well we, will, <laughs> we will certainly see what happens. David Dietz, thank you so much. President and Chief Investment Strategist over at Point View Wealth Management on the phone from Summit, New Jersey. Tongue twisted there, but you know, we know we need to get something done here. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us too on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.